Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, Richard, before we start today, this is going to be a great show, by the way, I can tell already. But before we, before we start, I want to formally apologize to all of the friends that received a personal email from me that said something like, Hi, this is Carl from Quaker Hill. I'd like to refer customers to you on Alignable. Please join. So, I call this the Alignable Invasion. Now, first oh, of all, nice. Alignable is a thing that's kind of like LinkedIn, right? You, you okay. go on, it's for the purpose of sharing business contacts and trying to drum up new business with people that you might know, that you might not know. You get, you have a network that's that way, right? But I had been getting these emails like my friends just got from me for months and I've been ignoring them. And, you know, they started to become more frequent and the people that were sending them started to be a little higher to people, you know, on the list of people that I would like to actually do business with. Right. So, I decided to take the plunge. And when I went in, um, Alignable.com said to me, well, now that you're here, you know, would you like to invite your friends? And I said, sure. So, I think I gave it access to my contacts, which I don't really remember. It was all kind of a blur. You know, there was scotch involved. I yeah, just really don't know. And maybe something stronger than scotch. I really don't know. But anyway, needless to say, I did authorize them to access my quote-unquote contact list, whatever that is. And everybody that I've ever emailed, ever tweeted, ever Facebooked, like, got this message from me. I'd like to be able to refer clients to you or, or whatever. And I'm, I, I, you know, got a lot of people coming back and say, hey, Carl, is this really you? Uh, yeah. And, and also, they're responding <laughs> to my emails as if, like, it was a personal email. They made it sound mm. like I wrote it by hand. I think the number one hit on Google for Alignable is Alignable, the worst spam bot social platform of all mankind. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> I'm willing to give it a shot. You know, the people that can actually go there and, you know, maybe we can help each other. Maybe we can't. But I just need to personally apologize to anybody who's listening that got an email from me. I'm not going to be offended if you just completely ignore it. So... That's my story. I have no idea if the platform itself is any good. I mean, right. apparently it's good at getting my friends to think that I'm really more interested in them than I am. Yeah, this, uh, it seems very social engineering, but you know, all anybody trying to launch a social media platform at this point, you you've got to get critical mass and so hijacking people's contact lists is kind of par for the course. Yeah, and and I don't mind if they were clear about what they were doing and yeah. that there was going to be a personal message written by me. At least I should have been able to review it, you know, yeah. and edit it. But so deceptive, not a good start. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, uh I was talking to Zoiner before you got on and he got one. Of course he oh. got one cuz I had emailed him in the past. Yes. So anyway, that means I I might have one too. Maybe. I'm sure you did. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you did. Sorry, and Carl, to respond to that, I'll have my bot talk to your bot. I'm sure they'll get something wrong. I'm sure they'll oh, be man. training customers all the time. <laughs> it just makes me want to write a website called Misalignable. Nah, here you go. Good yeah. one. All right. Okay. Anyway, uh, how are you, man? How's the dog? How's life? You know, Zach's been feeling better. He's moving around pretty good these days. He won't go upstairs anymore. Uh, he still wants to hike, but he runs out of gas. So, we got the backpack for him. So, he travels in the backpack too. But he's uh, still a sweetie and uh, he's just a uh, little little faded, you know? He likes kayaking. I know that. He, yeah, I got him in the kayak. He, 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 I think he's gotten very farsighted. He has a tough time seeing anything up close to him. So, it's just the eyes aren't working that well now, but he, he misses mm. things right in front of him, but a little further off. So, uh, I don't know that he actually enjoyed the kayaking so much as he tolerated it. Yeah. But, I, you know, it, it worries me that he, he's willing to just stay at home for a dog that normally is like, where are we going? What are we doing? Why are we still here? Why are you such a slacker? Let's go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, let's get started with Better Know a Framework. All right, man, what do you got for me? You know, from the stupid CSS tricks department, here, <laughs> <laughs> here, 
Here comes Bubbly. What is Bubbly? Bubbly is a, a single page application that shows you how to do speech bubbles with CSS. You can customize them. You can put make a pointer triangle. You can make a, uh, uh, you know, a whatever, a half triangle. Y- you can change the background color. You can increase the pointer size. Huh. And then it gives you the little CSS classes that yes, you can you- copy into your project. This is from Leveroo. What's that? This is from Leveroo's GitHub. Yep. That's right. We've had her on the show before. She's yep. one of the best CSS people I've ever met. Well, I'll tell you, this is... This is good stuff, and I'll tell you how I used it. Mm. It's so simple, but so easy and and brilliant. Um, so I think I mentioned Blazard uh, modal. Did I not on Better Know Framework? This is Chris Sainty's modal dialogue library for Blazor. Yeah, I don't think you have. That kind of oh. sounds cool. All right, well that'll be next week. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> anyway, it's modal dialogues, uh, and what's great about using these modal dialogues is they're very customizable. They look like pop-ups, but they're not actual new windows, so you don't have to pop-up blocker problem. Um, but I needed something, on, and I used you know Blazard uh, modal in my applications, but I needed something that was a little more, well, not window-like, right? I wanted something that was just a, a call-out bubble because I used it to do a sort of, um, a, what do you call it? Like a walkthrough tutorial for new mm-hmm. users of my application. You know, like I put up a bubble and it's a little bit see-through and I have some fake data and then I disable all the buttons and then I you know, have a move next, move previous, stop the tutorial, whatever. And it just moves and points to different things in the application, loads up different pages, and then, you know, explains things. Mm -hmm. So, it's kind of cool. And this fit the bill perfectly. And uh, so, that that's it. I I thought it was great. I mean, it's a great start. Um, You're free to obviously take it and run with it and modify it. Sure, any it's CSS, but, you know. Yeah. I would defer to Leveroo any day of the week when it comes to the CSS. If she says this is the right way to do something, believe it. Yeah, well, it worked out really, really well for me, so I highly recommend Bubbly. Awesome. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off a show 1673, one we did with Danny Simmons and Gustavo Sares, when we talked about uh, the pros technology, the program synthesis using examples, which is integrated into Visual Studio. It's part of their sort of machine learning engine for taking IntelliSense to the next level. Nice. It can actually help you write stuff. There's a bunch of stuff on GitHub. It was really a cool conversation. But, you know, every time you press against those sort of AI topics, we, we end up falling into, I don't know, I would almost call it mythology, hmm. you know, and, and I, I, I think I blame... Um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, right? You know, 1968. It's the first time the wor- the rest of the world actually heard the phrase artificial intelligence. Yeah. In yeah. the form of Hal, who well, immediately tried to kill everyone, right? Unless they were reading Asimov, but certainly well, in, in the movies. It was uh, R.C. Clarke who, who authored, partially authored the script. Yeah. Right? And he actually published the book after the movie. But... You know, again, it's like the way the AI was introduced to the public, it sort of created this gestalt was that it was an enemy. Mm-hmm. And it, it was just a movie. Like, right. granted, granted, an influential movie, but still. And so, uh, Rick has this comment from the show. He says, Carl, please don't worry that AI code will replace you. Automation has replaced people in our lives because it was automation only in the hands of huge companies. Right. Now, automation is being put in the hands of the everyday professional. As a one-man shop, as you called yourself recently, it makes you more competitive, not less. Machine learning and artificial intelligence is not the enemy because it can be used by everyone. Yeah. The goal is to stay on top of it and learn with it. Like the computer itself, these are technologies that everyone needs to learn how to incorporate best. Only when General Motors has robots, then everyone is out of work, which I don't Mm. think that's true either. But when everyone has robots, we can all be at work because we can all use robots effectively for any need that we have. This is automation for everyone, and everyone needs to learn it. So long as we can afford the robots, because we don't well, have jobs, that. remember? <laughs> well, the big, you know, when GM started doing manufacturing of cars using robots, which still involved people, yep, yep. but they weren't on the direct line, the main thing that happened was the quality of cars went up, and the cost of cars went down. Right. 
You know, that's the feature of automation is that perfect repeatability makes higher quality things. Right. And, uh, and makes it less expensive to manufacture over time. So it's, it's always this interesting dynamic. Now that's not great for the guy who used to be working the line. Right. He ends up needing to retrain, but he can be retrained, you know, unlike a robot. Anyway, I thought it might be, it's a, it's a talking point for today for sure. Yep. So, Rick, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show to Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. Position absolute. <laughs> CSS joke for you there. CSS jokes. I hear it. I hear it. But I don't it's believe not just it. The it's not just the mug with the text going out of the box, which is funny too. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, let's bring on Zoiner. Zoiner Tejada has more than twenty years of experience in the software industry as a software architect, CTO, startup CEO, and venture investor, with particular expertise in cloud computing, big data analytics, and machine learning. Uh, his bio goes on and on from there, but uh, he, needless to say, he's the manager at Salliance and so much more. Read his bio. It's Zoiner Tejada. Welcome, Zoiner. Welcome back. Thanks, guys. It's good to be back with you. Way too long, friend. Like yep. more than five years? At least, yeah. I mean, yeah. what were we talking about back then? It was probably Google Analytics. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, You're not wrong. Tracking the, only, these- <laughs> the only bubbles we were talking about back then was the dot-com bubble. <laughs> oh, yeah don't tell me about that that that's in my bio uh, the funny story there is i got my degree in batch my bachelor of science in computer science at stanford university throughout the bubble beginning middle and end i was there for the whole thing. nice wow for better or worse right yeah right <laughs> both yes <laughs> although other than other than the silicon valley burning down right now uh it's it's still a crazy busy place. There's still tech giants like they've just changed names. There's another round of them. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Funny. What shifted you over to the machine learning side of things, Zoiner? Like what what was your moment that you decided you needed to dive into this? Uh, that's a great question. I'll start with the fact that I've always been a data guy, right? The, mm-hmm. yeah. the thing that got me into programming in the very first place was when I was in high school, I had the privilege of interning at a company with the promising name, the Digital Sweatshop. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't seem encouraging, really. You, you would think maybe someone in the school system would have been worried about this internship, but it turned yeah. out quite positive. And uh, they taught me how to do web development. Remember Cold Fusion? Yeah. Also, oh, how can I forget? The FML. <laughs> yes, my first yep. language. And uh, what fascinated me most about building CFML was not so much the web apps that I could build, but the way I could search through full text. That mm. was mind-blowing, right? Yeah. Interesting. And, and so the data capabilities from the very beginning have been something that's always been interesting to me. And as we've evolved in our capabilities, we've added more algorithms to the tool belt. Mm. We've enabled developers to use machine learning. Uh, and we've also come up with prepackaged solutions in AI, right? It's sort of AI APIs that we can just grab and go. Um, it's gotten to be a very interesting world. Uh, so several years ago, uh, I really evolved from my focus on big data into doing machine learning, right? Which is really a natural evolution of kind of the data science process, right? What's sure. the oil in the whole machine? It's the data, right? Yeah. Uh, you're not going to do a lot of particularly interesting machine learning if you don't have the data. So you see the machine learning side of things is just a straight extension of the big data movement in the first place? I'd say yes, and uh, they're very intertwined, right? So mm-hmm. I think you can't have one without the other, right? You need to have the big data in place so that you can collect it, so you can refine it, so you can build pipelines that can continually feed your machine learning models when they're being trained, uh, and so that you can continue to retrain those models as life goes on and the world changes dramatically. I mean, March is a good <laughs> yeah. example for this year of patterns that are suddenly broken. Yeah, no kidding. And why you need to retrain anything that you've done in machine learning because things change. You know, I look at machine learning and, uh, and AI as a way to make sense out of data, whereas there's a lot of companies that are data rich but insight poor if you know what I mean. So, so you take data, all the data in the world is great, but unless you know how to do something with it, it's worthless. That's fair. Uh, I, I would, to use a metaphor, 
you know, what machine learning gives us in many respects is the ability to find the needle in the haystack with hmm. ever decreasing sizes of needles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. There was a time in the earlier days of like OLAP and data warehousing where we had this technology we called data mining applying different algorithms of data to find sort of exceptions and edge cases and like stuff that was essentially in interesting that it seems the same thing essentially as machine learning or how would you define a difference to, between the two so the evolution you can look at it from this perspective in the time of data mining a lot of the insights that we were calling out of the data were rules-based there was some poor human who was writing a 400 line switch statement on the <laughs> right? <laughs> what, you mean my whole career? Is that what you're talking about, Zoiner? My condolences. <laughs> but where we go with machine learning is that, especially when we get into the, you know, the other, the sort of the deeper topics of deep learning, uh, you get into the ability for the algorithm to pick up these patterns, right? So mm -hmm. a human doesn't have to teach the algorithm what's interesting here. Right. And what it should be taking away from this data. A human just basically has to say, here's the data. Here's what resulted. You figure it out. Right. And the algorithms learn to write those, you know, 800 line switch statements. Funny. Now, I've, all, I've heard it described that way that, you know, normally we have a pile of data. We write a bunch of rules. We get some results. But machine learning is I have a pile of, of data, of inputs. I have a set of results I'm looking for. Now go write the 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 algorithm i think you might have been at one of my presentations that's <laughs> <laughs> possible but I, you may have borrowed that concept too i suspect <laughs> it's a very very well established way to explain it and i think it's a good one mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that we're now asking the machine to write the algorithm essentially mm -hmm. that's right is the cloud an essential part of this equation because the other thing i think about when i think about the old olap and data mining days is we were very uh, resource constrained in compared to today. Ah, excellent question. So, again, with the oil, with data being the oil of mm -hmm. machine learning, right? It's it's certainly one of those cases that who builds an oil farm and says, you know what, I'm going to stop at one well. <laughs> yeah, right. We have the same problem with machine learning. It's it's more data is is generally better, right? And so more data means at some point we have to increase our capacity. And very mm -hmm. quickly with the growth of data that we're dealing with, we're extending from what we can run on-premises to what requires cloud scale, right? And the first thing that we see in that shift is we stop using the standard databases that we're used to, right? The, the OLAP databases, the relational databases, and we go for simple. We start exporting it all out to flat files, and we put it in this fancy hyperscalable storage in the cloud called a data lake, mm -hmm. right? And that right. data lake is basically uh, the place that we can collect all of this data that we can then decide how do we refine it and feed it into our machine learning models for training purposes, right? So cloud turns out just from the scale of the data that we want to be dealing with, turns out to be pivotal uh, to the whole process. Now, we've met, we've talked about data lakes a couple of times here. How do you define it? What's different between a data lake and and I don't know, blob storage or any other sort of storage mechanism. Sure. So I'll start with the data lake that I used was lowercase, right? It's mm. data lake as a concept, right? Okay. The idea of data lake as a concept is it's effectively a file system. You can store anything you want in there in any format, right? So for instance, the, this is something that I think a lot of folks new to the data engineering and the data lake idea struggle with, which is what, what is the file format? What, can I, can I join tables? Can I, is there a query? Do I write T-SQL? So uh, all of those sort of things are, are much simpler here, right? What we have in a data lake is files. So these could be comma-separated value CSV files. They could be specialized formats that are more performant for querying, like Parquet. Uh, they could be images. They could be videos. It doesn't matter. They're mm -hmm. just files, right? The mm -hmm. difference is the underlying infrastructure is designed to be able to scale out to a dramatic extent, right? Effectively infinitely, right? Cloud scale, right? The, the, yeah. the illusion of infinite scalability is there. And uh, we're able to load it with whatever data. And when we go to read that data, it has certain provisions for us that enable us to read that data in parallel so that we can get through massive data sets quickly, right? That's the gist of the concept of the data lake. It's the centralized repository for all of the data. 
And is there any structure to it at all? I mean, you said CSV or anything, but do, like, does, do you store it in a particular order? Does that, any of that matter? Is it just one big folder? It does matter, but you hit the nail on the head. It's just a folder system, right? Mm-hmm. You effectively have folders and files, right? Okay. So uh-huh. what are these folders? Like, is there a hierarchy to the folders? You can establish a hierarchy. Uh, this is one of those design tenants that you kind of get into. Um, because if you look at a file system as a database, right? And you want to issue a query against a file, what do you do? Well, you give it a file path and it gives you back the file, right? That's right. basically mm-hmm. the querying that it can do. Yeah. So uh, in effect, a data lake borrows from that same idea, but it has some additional capabilities. Like I can say, here's all the files under that folder. So for instance, if I'm collecting big data in a sense from across a period of time, like my, my fair example is that, you know, collecting thermostat data that's streaming in from, you know, my Nest device or whatever. Right. If I want to get all the data for a day, I've probably created a folder structure in my data lake that is, you know, at the very top of the year, then a subfolder the month, then a subfolder the day. And then within that day, I have a bunch of files where it's, you know, a, a small set of telemetry in each file that's been collected within that time period in the day. So what mm-hmm. enables is me to write very performing queries that say, get me all the data for, you know, August 27th, right? And yeah. without blinking, the data lake engine can return all, all of those files very quickly to me. Now, is that because the folder structure means that all the, fo- all the data collected on August 27th is in the same folder? That's right. Okay. So it, it's just a time series. It can be, right? Um, but it, it depends on the problem domain. I picked a time series problem with, uh, with, with, with the Nest telemetry data. But right. for example, if I was doing something with natural language processing, you have a totally different structure, right? So, uh, well, Carl, we were talking about uh, my bot talking to your bot. About yeah. <laughs> right. So let's imagine I wanted to build a bot that automatically responded to the alignable emails, right? So I would be collecting those emails, shredding them into sort of plain text and storing them in the data lake, right? Could I put them by date? That could be. You know, I could store them in time series format, but I might end up storing them differently by sender, right? I might have a root folder that's uh, Carl Franklin first, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry, it might be under the subfolder of offenders, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> and underneath that, right, I have all of the, just the plain TXT files that have the text extracted from the email, right? Mm-hmm. And so the folder structure could be completely different, right? And if you imagine if I'm doing this at, at scale, right, I'm not just doing it for Zoiner, but I'm doing it, say, as a service for the world, right? I'm collecting all of these emails. I have lots of requirements in terms of the throughput of the data I'm writing in uh, and the storage capacity, right, that I, that I need to be able to have kind of needs to be limitless, right? I don't know how many emails Alignable is going to send on your behalf, Carl. Sorry. Yeah, well, we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still finding out every day. <laughs> So in that case, you're, you're sort of mailbox by mailbox. Do you have all of these structures in your data lake or do you have to kind of pick out an approach for any given data lake? So here's the, the thing that's mind-blowing to most folks who are new to the data lake concept. And that is that uh, you end up being okay with duplicating the data. Right. Whoa, for a second, third normal form, mind-blown. We're breaking all the rules. You know, we're, we're supposed to not have duplicate data in a database. This is a new... Dr. Cod is rolling over. Exactly. But the thing about it is we're now in a situation where what the data lake offers is very inexpensive storage, right? Storage is cheap, right? Uh, so what's expensive? Processing is expensive. So mm-hmm. what we end up doing is to reduce the cost of processing, we duplicate the data in the way that benefits and reduces the processing time. Mm. So give you an example, uh, in, uh, in the time series one, if we had it sorted by year, month, day, but it turns out we actually are more interested in aggregating the data by device. Like I want to see all of Zoiner's devices because mm-hmm. this guy is wasting AC electricity at home in San Diego, California, because <laughs> we've got the, the air conditioner running full blast. Uh, we want to build a report that summarizes that. Well, you know, going over all of those subfolders by day, not the most efficient way to do it, right? You're going to read a lot of data that's not relevant. Mm-hmm. And so we can flip that, right? We'll make a copy of the data. We'll flip it so that Zoiner's at the root. Right. And then underneath that, maybe by day, we have his usage by, you know, month, day and year underneath, or well, year, month, day underneath that. 
Mm-hmm. So when you were ingressing that data, would you simply just write it to two locations, like your ingress mechanism and say it needs to go in two different folder structures? It's not common that you do that. You usually start by ingressing it in one way, and then you have right. engineering pipelines that take it from the raw form to the next sort of refined form, right? So, okay. which often means duplicating the data. We, we often say that we have tiers of refinement that are sort of um, bronze, silver, and gold, and Sometimes people add platinum <laughs> for what, right? Right, but they're just different levels of refinement of the data. What's the end goal that we're after here? The end goal is that we've refined and restructured the data to optimize the type of queries, the way we're going to ask questions of the data downstream to improve the processing time. When you're doing that process, are you actually parsing the data at that point? Or are you looking at the folder structure to find the sort of Zoiner indicator? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, both. You're looking at the folder structure, the the, the actual text in the path, as well as the the contents of the files. You know, we're parsing text files and calling it machine learning. I love this. Everything's great. Right? I mean, there's there's some things here that feel like throwback to 1970s. Yeah, no, I I feel good. I want an RS-232 port and I'll be be perfect, (laughs) right? Everything is good. I know what's going on. Stop it. Just just (laughs) stop it. (laughs) <laughs> but you, uh, the fact that you would stage data like that is you're trying to you, there's got to be a constraint right that that it makes sense to reorganize the data because there is a cost to not reorganizing the data that's right uh and the cost can be it's just impossible for you to run that query literally like there's just not enough cloud resources in the world to answer that question against your data sets volume. Where the intelligence you have about the hierarchy of your data and some simple parsing so that you can cut down the volume of data. I mean, I would think when you start talking impossible, it's because you have exabytes of data. You know what? It can happen with as few as just several million files, right? So one of the bugaboos of most uh you mentioned blob storage, but most blob storage solutions, whether it's Azure or it's Amazon or others, right, is enumerating files, right? They're designed to give you a file quickly. So you say, I want that file, give it to me. Uh, when it comes time to say, here's a folder, it has, you know, 100 million files in it. Give me the file list. You know what it has to do? It has to actually read all of those files and go through and get yeah. the list, right? There's significant work involved in enumerating 100 million files. So... Uh, yeah, there's there's certainly problems that you can have that don't require massive scale. Just a lot of small files could do could do you in. Right, just that that cycle time. Like you asked me to enumerate 100 million files, I'm going to be a while. Yep. We're sim- knowing the hierarchy to say, okay, well, we only only need to look at a million of these, and here's the hierarchy for the million we need. Exactly. Yeah, it's a huge impact. Mm-hmm. So you know, then then it might be helpful to understand. Well, okay, we're we're doing this dance, right? Where we've moved away from a relational database, but how mm-hmm. does this tie into machine learning? What what's the value prop here? Before we dive into that, Zoiner, let's interrupt for this one very important message. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy application experience for your customers? With Raygun Application Performance Monitoring, you've got all the information you need right at your fingertips to find and fix errors and performance problems across your tech stack down to the line of code. Raygun makes it easy to monitor the impact of your performance improvements, quickly identify and resolve issues, and see how your code performs in the hands of your customers, saving you time, money, and sanity. Visit Raygun.com and join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every day to deliver flawless experiences for their customers. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. There's my friend Carl Franklin. We're talking to Zoiner about machine learning, and we haven't talked about machine learning yet. We talked about sorting file systems because it turns out machine learning is all about the file system. You know, you know, funny side story there, Richard, in the typical data science project where you're doing machine learning, mm-hmm. 80% of the time is spent on the data engineering and not the model training, right? Mm. which is pretty much what we just did in this conversation. <laughs> sure. We spent the, you've got to sort out the data. It's all about the data. We haven't, but we haven't talked about anything like cleaning or validating yet right. either, have we? Yeah. Nope, we haven't. But we, we, we should probably talk about the end goal because it starts right. to make more sense, right? So what are we doing with with machine learning, right? We're, we're basically typically showing an algorithm, some historical data, 
right? And we're either asking it to find patterns in that data that we humans don't know, we don't see, but it's going to find them. Or we're giving it historical data and we said, there's some patterns here, but they result in these outcomes. Can you figure out the relationship, right? Right. Uh, so, you know, simple example would be, you know, we, <laughs> we see in, in, in social media, sentiment is a, fa- is a favorite, right? We want to look right. at text that someone's typed. Is it positive or negative in sentiment, right? Uh, so what we, how we train such a model is, is, is kind of fascinating is we'll collect all of those tweets, right? As plain text, right? Then a data scientist is, is going to probably have to do some data engineering to clean that data up, right? They're going to, mm-hmm. they're going to standardize the format. They're going to clean up the text. They're going to remove words that aren't helpful. Typically they even do things like they lowercase all of the text. They expand acronyms, uh, et cetera, right? So there's a whole laundry list of, uh, steps that they take to clean up that data. Mm. And then uh, they feed it into a model where uh, hopefully they or someone has manually labeled each of those examples, each of those tweets as this is a positive sentiment tweet, this is a negative sentiment tweet, right? Right. And so then we show that list of tweets uh, to the algorithm, right? And it starts to pick up. Every time I see happy, joyous, lovely, exciting, that's positive. Every time I see hateful, disgusting, annoying, boring, that's negative, right? And so it starts to understand at, at a conceptual level, like what are the features, the, the aspects of this text that were uh, insightful in making that connection between the text and the sentiment. And the next layer that you have to understand is that, well, in data science and in machine learning, we never work with text. We work with numbers. Hmm, we right. always work with numbers. These algorithms are almost purely mathematical, at their core, right? So we take that text, right? And we convert it into an array, a vector, right? You can think of it as coordinates in this n-dimensional space, right? Think of the many parallel universes that we have. We've just identified this tweet lives over there, right? Pick a place in your favorite universe. And that coordinate is something that we feed into the machine learning algorithm that it learns to say, oh, well, when it has these sort of coordinates, these tend to be the, the positive sentiment ones. And when it's over here in this other quadrant, these tend to be the negative sentiment ones. Right. right? And so we're looking at really at the end of the day, finding ways for the algorithm to sort of draw out dividing lines in a mm-hmm. multidimensional space. Right. And it's a simple example that that specific type of problem in machine learning, we call a classification problem because it's classified either as positive one or negative zero. It's, it's, it's classified as one of those two labels. But do you really get to the one or zero? Is it just a band of gray? <laughs> <laughs> That's a fantastic question. Uh, you're right. We, we work uh, in a continuous number spectrum here. So we're mm-hmm. dealing with decimals, right? So right. In, in its rawest form, the, the machine learning algorithm will typically come back with 7 point, uh, 0.72. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? Well, you're, you're, you're the final step in your machine learning algorithm will probably be a step that does equivalent of rounding and says 0.72, that's a one. So it's positive. Right. Right. Is it fair to say it's 72% positive? Uh, that is uh, something that depends on the algorithm and is sort of open to your interpretation. But yeah, right. You, you, well, you, I, I'm, you I'm, and I'm trying to avoid lying to myself by putting too much weight on that because I think we perceive these percentages inaccurately. That's true. And, and that's often the case, right? It, and that when people speak about their machine learning algorithms, that, that there's a lot of subtlety there. There's a sort of a requisite understanding of probability, which mm-hmm. makes most people's head spin. Um, yeah. Plus, and, 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 and probability is hard even for folks who are professional at probability. Like they still have to sort of sit down and pull out a piece Resist of your instincts. Right? Mm. So, well, and you said like 0.72 rounding to one, I don't have a whole lot of problem with. Where you get jumpy is when it's 0.49. Yeah, exactly. What do you do, right? What's, what is your realm of neutral sentiment, right? Mm-hmm. You, you might just decide, hey, it's, it's a quarter, quarter, quarter or something very simple, right? Um, yeah. So, that we only round to zero when it's below 0.25. We only round to one when it's above 0.75. Yep. And in between, we have this neutral zone. Yep, exactly. Hmm. But then we have to decide, again, this is all about getting results. We, you know, what what does this mean? Like, what, how do we react to neutral versus positive or negative? That's right. And that's part of what becomes kind of the business decision, right? Mm-hmm. This is not unlike, in many ways, algorithms have an architecture 
not unlike the way comp, you know, solutions that we deploy in the cloud have an architecture or software that we design has an architecture, mm-hmm. right? And the, the architecture kind of reflects the business requirements, right? You want uptime, you deploy more than two servers. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, you want, you want the, the sentiment to, to, ref, to sort of have a particular direction, a particular bias in one way or another because of the type of text that you're processing. You build that into the algorithm, right? You design yeah. into the algorithm. You do not want to have the same positive reaction to a 0.51 that you have to a 0.84. Yeah, that's right. But you know where it gets really fun? Mm. Sarcasm and double negatives. (laughs) Okay, I'll see you guys in about 15 minutes. I'm just going to go for a walk. (laughs) (laughs) I knew this would happen. Yeah. But, you, you know, you totally... And what you're really saying is misclassification, right? That That's that right. when the the limitations of the algorithm's ability to identify things goes away, because I would think that sarcasm would actually weigh very heavily in one way or the other and be completely wrong. Mm-hmm. But you'd be completely right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So so and, and I brought that up, Carl, uh, because it's really uh, akin to the in your intro the, the question on are we at this sort of state of uh, general intelligence, right? Where it's like, okay, the algorithms are ruling the world and there are overlords. We just go, I'll go home now. Right. right? And you, you see it has these, these issues with some things that are fundamentally very easy for humans to deal with yep. that turn out to be very complicated problems with lots of trade-offs for the algorithms. Right. And, and it's, it's a point uh, that I think is important to raise, right? That there's, there are several sophisticated tools in the artificial intelligence toolbox um, that we can benefit from, right? And as developers, we benefit from them in the simple way as they can just be APIs that we use. Like there's APIs that give us sentiment, right? We don't have to go through any of this training process. I just described. We call an API and we're done, right? But, you know, they're just tools in the toolbox that solve specific problems, but we also have to be clear on what are the business goals in the problem and how do we want to be using the model um, to the benefit, right, of the business. I also see the argument of why are you building something that's already existing library, right? Like, do you, is you building your own sentiment analysis system move the company closer to success or deploying the one that already exists? So it's a great question. And, and, and I don't want to trivialize sentiment because the field of sentiment analysis is often viewed as as large as natural language processing. It's a very hmm. robust with lots of different nuanced capabilities, right? We don't just talk about sentiment in positive or negative. We talk about opinion mining uh, and we even get into argument mining, right? Where it's like, what's, you know, what was the chain of logic that this person followed to reach at this conclusion, right? Uh, So it's, it's, it's a robust area, but in direct answer to your question, Richard, when we talk about uh, why you might not use the off the shelf AI API, it's it's the data, <laughs> yeah, right? So right, yeah. most of those AI uh, APIs that you can get off the shelf have been trained against web data. So, you know, a lot of the Microsoft ones, for instance, have been trained using data from Bing, right? And right. so the sentiment it learns is based on the type of text that would be prevalent in the web. Yep. Well, what happens when you're in a business situation where the technical domain is not on the web? It's medicine. It's uh, manufacturing. It's news media that's maybe not so public, right? Um, right. How do you... Anything how, government, really. The anything, language is yeah, so different. It's clandestine. <laughs> yeah. But, well, I, I am thinking about... It's funny. I was just reading a book uh, and talking about how uh, efficiency reports in the military damn with faint praise. Like, the, it, it's not that you told said this person's incompetent. You would never say that. It's always something so much more subtle mm. that to a human who is reading it in this military context says, well, this person's career is actually over. But to, to a civilian, it's like, it sounds fine. And if you if you were analyzing, if you'd built a sentiment analysis tool based on the outrage that is Twitter, you couldn't read these things. Like, you would not even be close. That's right. A hundred percent. Hmm. It's really, this is a bias conversation all of a sudden. Yep. And that bias didn't come from the algorithm. The bias came from the data. Oh, okay. Now we're back to the data problem again. So go back to the first half of the show. This is the whole problem space. <laughs> yep. Data is the oil. Yeah. Get away from it. 
So don't count on us. It's interesting. Before I used, this is something I've never had to do before. You know, how many times have you looked at a chunk of code in GitHub and said, this seems to do what I needed to do. But if you were looking at a sentiment analyst library that's been trained, you have to know the data it was trained on. That's right. To really be able to assess it. Yep. Hmm. That's an interesting problem. And, and it, but it also means for me, putting something like that out in the world, that's what you've got to lead with. And that is the direction the industry is evolving to, right? This, mm-hmm. this is not just a, oh, it's an annoying thing when my sentiment analysis goes haywire. It becomes a problem with serious real world consequences as maybe the sentiment is used in, say, evaluating someone's resume, right? Mm, uh, right. It's a higher, no higher decision. And the bias turned out to negatively affect candidates who are otherwise have been fantastic, right? Right. So the data becomes a problem. And so the industry is going in a direction of having these data cards that describe what was the source of the data, what are statistical properties, where is it biased, what's insightful to know about this, right? So that when you're evaluating the algorithm that and the model that's produced, you also know the data that produced it. And you say, where is it biased? As in, it's always going to be biased. Yes. There's always going to be some bias. The question right. is, is it a bias you can live with? And certainly one that you need to understand is it's going to affect your data. Exactly. Or more importantly, affect your results. Huh. Well, I've got some things to think about yeah. here. That's It's really interesting. Uh, but we're still, it. you know, we've only talked a little bit about the machine learning part. That seems relatively simple. I mean, how do you know when you're doing a good job? <laughs> Also a good question. So uh, the machine learning process itself is very iterative, right? So you train the model and then like a teacher in school, you evaluate the model. How good is it doing, right? So you have, uh, you know, just like the teacher knows the answers to the test that uh, she delivers to her students, right? You as the, the, the trainer typically have the data that you know the answers to, right? So you're evaluating how it performs against a known data set in some fashion, right? And you're giving it a score, right? Did this did this get a 90% and an A or uh, 50% and an F, right? Uh, how good um, were, were its, uh, was its performance? And there's several different metrics that are used. Uh, don't need to bore folks with that, but suffice it to say, a data scientist spends a lot of time looking at those metrics, tweaking the models, tweaking the data to get them to be good enough. And then that's what ships as the model. Um, and so the machine learning model is then trained. So we talked about, we train the model, we value the model, and then we deploy the model, right? And we, we get to the, the model deployment. This is kind of where, again, it lights up as, as a dev task because we're taking this model, which is effectively a black box file, right? We're typically doing one of two things. Uh, in the simplest case, we're just using that model in the same library that we trained it in, in the same language. So like if it was a model that we trained in Python, we might load it back up in Python, you know, um, from deserialize it from disk and, and use it directly in Python code. Um, but more commonly, what we'll end up doing is we'll end up packaging up that model as a web service, right? And, and then right. it becomes something that developers can easily use, right? So we can, uh, like when we're talking about Azure Machine Learning, for example, we'll take the model, we'll upload it into a repository that's managed by Azure Machine Learning. And then we can deploy that model as a web service into web services that are running in Azure Container Instances or Azure Kubernetes Service and sort of give us some really high-scale web serving. Are the tools important here? Like we talked about, you talked about data lakes very generally, but like does Azure Data Lake do something for you that makes it more than just a file store? And same for machine learning. Like where the where do the products play into this? Sure. So yeah, the tools are, are very important. If we're talking about Azure specifically, you're Azure Data Lake is is the Data Lake service, right? So it's conveniently named. So now we're talking about Data Lake with a capital D and a capital L, right? And uh, that does give us the capability to do um, the the sort of scale out storage, the distributed processing, uh, and they are adding additional um, capabilities for um, improving the query performance, right, of, of the data in in the Data Lake. Soiner, have you heard of uh, Awesome GPT three? Yep. So, and what are your thoughts about that? Yep. So, uh, awesome GPT three uh, is is a great way to leverage the GPT three model, right? And what I'm most familiar with is the GPT three side of that, right? Uh, because we do a lot of work in natural language processing. So let's tell the and, folks what it is. We tried to explain it ourselves last week, but uh, 
you could probably do a better job. Sure. So I'll start with, you know, GPT-3 is a model that you can think of trained on a significant amount of all the world's web data, right? So think of all of the news that's out there, all of the Wikimedia content, uh, tweets, right? Uh, anything that's public from the various social networks, right? Collected into a model that has uh, a lot of knobs, it, to put it succinctly, <laughs> right? So we, we talk about having, you know, when we talk about models in machine learning, sometimes we just talk about a simple line, right? Like the sentiment is is really trying to divide uh, the data into two areas. Maybe, maybe we're so lucky that the data lands on two sides of a line. So under the covers, we have basically a line. Remember the equation for line y equals mx plus b. Mm-hmm. We have the x, you know, is is the, the m is the the weight, right? That we have to worry about. We basically have one parameter and, a, and an offset, right? When we talk about GPT three, we're looking at these models that have hundreds of billions of parameters, right? So they themselves are very complicated, right? Uh, and GPT three enables us to do things like uh, generate text. Right. So given um, some seed text, we can say, you know, Carl Franklin is the best and then leave it and see what it comes up with. And it'll write a whole essay from that. Right. It's crazy. Uh, One of the things that's really fun to do with GPT-3, if you've ever played with the demos, like with Awesome here, uh, is to see when it was last trained by throwing historical events at it. Because it's learning from the news data, right? So right. if you put a question in about a current political event or, um, you know, so for instance, uh, or an election or something that has a very clear timeline, uh, you can see what it says <laughs> and it'll come back with some pretty surprising uh, responses, but you also see the limits of its knowledge, right? Sure. It has encoded a certain amount of historical information. It has encoded um, that, that information that it was trained against in its parameters, right? Even though it's not a database, it's not looking up this data. Uh, it has learned these relationships, right? Uh, from is the continuous current- learning a thing? Like, shouldn't it just keep learning, keep adding new data to it? So it's a uh, algorithm or does it have to reprocess? Like it goes offline, recreates itself with new data and starts again. Is Yes. And it does have to be reprocessed. And for things like GPT-3 with that are these gigantic models, right? the processing time is non-trivial and super mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about some serious hardware that's used to train these models. Uh, that's why you'll remember maybe earlier we talked, you know, we, you might've heard of GPT-2. When GPT-2 was being released, uh, the group OpenAI that created it was releasing it in tiers, right? Because they were really worried that it would uh, be used to generate fake news, right? Yeah. Because it was pretty oh, wow. good at generating text. Uh and their, their, the rationale for that was the if we release the full power version of it with all the parameters, right, then someone's going to generate fake news. But it's so hard to train this model. It's so prohibitively expensive that it's probably only going to be the megacorps and the nation state actors who could possibly do this. So, you know, let's let's control the, the, the situation a little bit more. So to answer uh-huh. your question, yes, it takes a lot of reprocessing uh, to create these models. And, and yes, it, it it collects new data. It gets retrained against the new data, um, but it's non-trivial. But it doesn't take a lot to operate a model. So, I mean, this sort of speaks to the advantage of cloud is you can harness a lot of compute for your training period and then shut it all down. Yes. Um, it, it, it depends on the model. GPT-3 um, is not super simple to run. It does take mm-hmm. a little bit of processing capability. Um, but you're right. The, the amount of effort that goes into training it versus the amount of effort that goes into operationalizing it or using it for predictions uh, is significantly less. You mentioned data scientists earlier. Are you? Is the implication here that you need to hire a data scientist to do this? The implication is you should have a data scientist on your team, right? Okay. Uh, a lot of this is is development. Um, I would I would say this: most developers would be pretty comfortable doing the data engineering tasks, right? Hmm. And as we established, that's kind of eighty percent of the problem, right? Where the data scientist's particular skill comes in is looking at a model and asking the questions like, how is this model biased? Is it really performing the way we're performing? Or is it just dumb luck that we're happening to get good answers right now? Right. That's kind of the skill set that the data scientist specifically brings. It sounds Um, like I need a developer with some cynicism. (laughs) (laughs) There's no running around. (laughs) 
<laughs> but also, it seems to me that data scientists are incredibly hard to to hire these days. That it makes more sense to grow that skill internally. It does. It makes a lot of sense to grow that skill internally. And there's, you know, I think to the industry's credit, there's a lot of resources out there uh, to help people get their hands on and start building that uh, intuition and that understanding of what it means to do data science. Now, and I'm I'm looking at this as a business owner's perspective, thinking. Do I encourage a DBA to take some classes because they've got strong data knowledge or do I incur and sort of move them towards data scientists versus taking a de- having a developer move in that direction? So <laughs> can I, this is like a Zoiner soapbox moment. <laughs> yeah, do it, man. All my Get up there. All my peers of responsibility for my statements. Mm. Uh, I would say um, in this particular case, data science has a lot more in, in common with development, right? I mean, the, the amount of Python code that you're going to sling is probably very similar or R code, right. for instance, that a developer is probably going to be more comfortable at least picking up the syntax and, and becoming familiar with the tools, right? A DBA will have a lot more of a learning curve to deal with because it's more programming heavy than they probably were used to right. um, managing one particular database or a couple of flavors of a database, right? Like different forms of SQL. But it does strike me that the personality is the most important thing. It's like, this is a real critical thinking stuff. Yes. Yes, exactly right. It, it's, it is critical thinking stuff. And the thing about it is it's a blend of um, different skills that you ultimately evolve, right? It's mm-hmm. it's algorithm and algorithmic analysis, much like software developers are really good at, right? It's, yeah, but um, we've had to do a lot of it. Exactly. And it's a competency with data and a, and a fluency with data. But depending on the specialization, the type of model that you're doing, it's also, you know, the understanding of the statistics mm-hmm. or the particular domain um, that help you build that model that it works, right? Like I'll give you an example, right? When we talk about, uh, data science uh, in our perspective on AI in general, right? We have sort of like a, do you remember Simon, the the game Simon that you would press the button? Sure, trying to match the pattern. It adds one more for each round. Yeah, yeah. And it, it just looks like a circle with four quadrants and there's sort of a circle in the middle, right? And mm-hmm. so in the way we look at AI today, we have at the center of it, all these tools, machine learning, deep learning, reinforcement learning. But the applications of those tools could be natural language processing. That's like the sentiment. Could be computer vision, like the what we need for self-driving cars or face recognition. It could be decision-making, like we're building recommenders, like what product you might like also like to buy. But it could also be analytics, right? Where we're you know, predicting you know, a, a particular value in the future, like what's, what's the temperature or when's this thing going to turn on or um, when we're classifying things, right? So there's these four big buckets, right? And each of those are kind of their own subject matter, right? You, you develop as a data scientist a particular expertise in one or more of those areas, but rarely are you an expert in all of them, right? And so, certainly not evenly. Definitely not evenly. Yeah, the same way that you know, folks develop clients in browsers or develop them via WinForms or WPF. They're all client development, but very different from each other. That's a great example. Hmm. Okay. And yeah, once you, one would argue you can't keep them all in your head at the same time. Like there's enough differences between them that when you try and do more than one, you, you, you keep fumbling over yourself. Like your knowledge of one impairs the other. Yes. And just like with software, right? The pace of evolution is as fast. All those libraries yeah. you guys are keeping on top every, on every show, right? That are evolving yeah. and coming out of seemingly out of nowhere. Same is true in, in this ecosystem. Well, and I, and I do feel like machine learning has matured in the past couple of years. We've had these conversations a few times. This, but your approach is very orderly that, that, and the tooling clearly seems to have, you know, gotten more serious here that, we have a lot of stuff that's already in existence you can take off the shelf if you understand its biases, but it's mostly about organizing your data so that you can take advantage of any of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, a lot of it has matured. The tooling is in place. There's still you know, a certain modicum of skill, and that's where you need to pull the data scientist in uh, mm-hmm. to help, right? But like you said, big part of it is development, right? And I think you can argue you can help the DBAs get into being data engineers because of their data fluency, right? They'll, mm-hmm. They will get too comfortable pretty quickly once they get past the shock of uh, denormalizing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You're trying to break up the, 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 the knowledge they've already gained or the scar tissue they have. Yeah. It's, it's unlearning some things, right? Yeah. And then after that, you know, the, the software engineers probably can pick up a good well of, uh, of the way of uh, the data science, you know, learning to use the 
algorithms that are out there, integrating them, right? The, the code itself is never super complicated, right? It's, it's the implications of the code where the complexity uh, surfaces. Right. And I also see that the, there's got to be a role for someone here who's constantly bouncing against business because you're going to imply a lot of business decisions along the way here. Like just that simple conversation about sentiment analysis where where's the neutral zone? Mm-hmm. That's really a business decision. That's exactly right. And, and this is the role that if we were talking about a, a, a software solution, we'd probably be bringing in an architect, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so we do similar things. Um, sometimes that role is fulfilled by the data scientist. He's the one bridging the sort of the gap between the technical and the business domain. Other times, you really do tend to have folks who are like the AI architects, right? They're right. the ones who are responsible for translating both ways. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I mean, I would even call them a project manager just because they are liaisoning back and forth, they, and they're and they're often involved very early on. Mm-hmm. You know, what I would want out of an architect is they built a few things like this already, and so they know where the pitfalls are. Oh yes, they know where the bodies are hidden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where the PM mindset is, I understand that my company really well and who are the sort of gatekeepers of key knowledge and, and, and resources so that I can make sure we're making the right thing and know, recognize when there's a business decision needs to be made and know who to take it to to get it made. Yes, yes. But the skill set that we're talking about here is someone who knows how to ask the right question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Frame the question. Framing the problem is probably the biggest core skill. Yeah, this strikes me as the kind of project that people get started on and halfway through start over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like suddenly realize we're, we're asking the wrong question. Yes. And that's why it's iterative, right? No, no, no good data science project came out swinging in the first iteration. <laughs> <laughs> and is that just because we're misunderstanding the problem or we learn more from the data? Like what's the thing that makes us re-gear so hard each time? Yes. All those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, if I'm completely baffled by this conversation and I just want to, you know, I, it, it's piqued my interest and I want to get my hands on something, some demo, some code, something that illustrates the power of what we're all talking about here. Do you have like the resource to go to? Mm, the resource is a difficult one. Uh, there's there's several resources. We, we had some great success. We had an introduction to machine learning course. That went live on Udacity. We meaning uh, Salience. Yeah, Salience. Yep. Yeah, uh, and we built that in in partnership with with Microsoft. So that was very well received. Um, so that that's one such resource. But there's a lot of uh, resources out there that you know. The key thing is get into the code. Don't get lost on the math. Yeah. Start running through the models, right? And and, and in some ways, you know, if you were to treat the, your learning like you're reading a book. Read, you know, set the priority to reading the book cover to cover and not so much getting stuck on any one page. Because in the beginning, you just kind of have to wrap your mind around the, the, the whole process, right? right? And then start to fill in the gaps. And, and how you do the, the gap filling, right, is take the code samples that are out there, you know, and run them. You know, there's notebooks that you can just run the code right. uh, and, and step through it and debug it, right? As it, you know, I'm coming, I came at it like a developer, right? So what do, the first thing I do is I grab the code and I go line by line stepping through the code. And inspect the state of things, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, is going to be infinitely helpful in your understanding. And in many cases, what you'll find is, while the math is is useful to have a description of, you really come back to it much later. In the beginning, you don't need it so much to start building things. Yeah. Hmm. Very good. Soiner, thanks a lot. Um, I, I was not participating as much just because I'm trying to hang on, man, you know? It's, it's uh, complex stuff, but I thank you for, uh, for sharing this hour with us, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners found it really, really helpful. Hi, it's really my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. Great to talk, friend. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. 
visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...